0: Hello, friends, welcome. Delighted to have you with me today. And oh my goodness, today's conversation with Catherine May. Mm, You need this. You need this in your life. Her new book is called Enchantment. And if you have been feeling just a tremendous amount of anxiety about the state of the world, about your own life, you need to listen to this conversation. It is not a self-help conversation. It's she's not a therapist. But this is something that all of us can do, and it can help us all improve our lives and feel better and live lives that are more full of wonder and peace and joy. And I just loved this conversation so much. So let's dive in. I'm Sharon McMahon, and here's where it gets interesting. I'm really excited to be chatting today with Catherine May because I absolutely loved her book enchantment and could not wait to have this conversation. And thanks for being here.
1: Oh, absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you so much. That's so kind of you to say.
0: When I started reading enchantment, I got to, I want to say it was like page five. And I was like, "Mm -hmm. this is absolutely the way almost everyone I know feels. And I just want to read this little section and I want to hear your comments on it. You say the last decade, has filled so many of us with a growing sense of unreality. We seem trapped in a grind of constant change without ever getting the chance to integrate it. Those rolling news cycles, the chatter on social media, the way that our families have split along partisan lines, it feels as though we've undergone a having, then a quartering, and now we are some kind of social rubble. If there was a spirit of this age, it would look a lot like fear. For years now, we've been running like rabbits. We glimpse a flash of white tail, read the danger signal, and run, flashing our own white tail behind us. It's a chain reaction, a river of terror surging incoherently onwards, gathering up other wild, alert bodies who in turn signal their own danger. And I could just keep reading. I could just be like, and now- I love the way you read that.
1: <laughs> that you made it sound like beat poetry. It was wonderful. <laughs>
0: You. but i was like if there were a spirit of this age it would look a lot like fear and i totally relate to this growing sense of unreality and i hear from so many literally thousands of people you've just articulated exactly how so many people not just in the united states but around the world feel and i i want to hear you talk a little bit more about your experience with this sort of growing sense of unreality.
1: Yeah, the 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 word unreality is so key there, isn't it? It's hard to pin down where that unreality resides. I mean, I I've just had the experience today of being on a, you know, one of those eternal customer service calls where you get shunted between a real human being and then a machine and then back again and then you have to call somewhere else and nobody nobody's got any decision-making power. And there's no, there's no contact in that system. And after a while you begin, and you know, that's just one of many experiences across our days, I think, that don't feel real anymore. They don't feel like real life. It doesn't feel like you're making any contact with actual human beings. And it also it does weird things to your perception of of who you are in this world and what you do with your time. It's so pointless and purposeless, and, and yet we are constantly engaged in conversations like that. And that's just one dimension of this explosion that has happened in the course of your and my lifetimes that really has gone from everything being face to face to, to living in a society that I that we all felt like we understood its values even if we didn't agree with them we felt like we got the parameters of what was happening that there was a, a basic sort of social contract between all of us and it was largely civil <laughs> and I it's really hard to actually account for the amount of change we've lived through and the level of fear we're now feeling. Not just about pandemics, not just about the risk of, of global wars breaking out, but of basic contact with each other, because we've drifted so far away from that being an everyday experience that it's become frightening to us. And we, we spend so much time in speculation about how terrible other people might be that, that it is, it's fed this, this very different reality for us.
0: We spend so much time in speculation about how terrible other people might be. Wow, that is so true, Catherine. We devote a lot of our energy to thinking about how terrible a different group is, a group that we're not a part of.
1: But what's really interesting is that these are groups that maybe we're not that far away from necessarily. You know, totally. these are groups that are people in our own family who 10 years ago we'd have comfortably sat around a dinner table with. and been fairly relaxed about our differences. And I think because of social media and because of the way that we see people now, you know, we, we get to see people's opinions rather than their humanity. That has escalated into this sense that we we cannot tolerate each other, that, that we are monstrous to each other, on, you know, on every side of the political spectrum wherever you sit on it. And there's, you know, there's a real tragedy to that. There's a real loss that we're enduring. And then, of course, we've been through a period when we were kept away from each other in in lockdowns. And we've emerged back into this world very unhealed from it and very, very, very distant from actually having a social skill set that will let us feel comfortable in in those places that used to comfort us, that used to feel safe and, and ordinary to us.
0: Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year
1: in some states. United Healthcare Short-Term Insurance Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes.
0: Nice dress. Uh it's a it's a t-shirt.
1: Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare.
0: When I want to describe how I feel right now, the word I reach for the most is discombobulated. It captures (laughs) perfectly my state of mind, confused, disoriented, out of sorts. And I, I feel like so many people can relate to that, like trying to find new footing, trying to locate a new normal. Do I need an entirely new set of friends? Do I have to never see Uncle Bob again? Like, what is wrong with me in this scenario that I can't just integrate and accept the way things have become? It is sort of this low level, for some people low level, for others much more heightened sense of discombobulation it's a great word for it
1: it's the word of our age i love that word and i i overused it i've always overused it it's a great word i mean it's fun to write it's fun to say It's fun to, like, i couldn't help but giggle when you said it because it's there's something very funny about it but it is it has bob actually, in the middle yeah, of it it's got bob in the middle that's kind of <laughs> nice yeah but and i think i say in the book like it for me it creates this picture of all my limbs floating off in different directions and my head too but i i think this state of being is becoming quite serious for us actually this very ungrounded unanchored unhomed state of being and it's truly distressing to be in that state all the time it's it's authentically distressing it sounds so minor and so light that it actually is causing us deep, deep anxiety and deep, deep stress. And yet, I think that we are reluctant to really solve the roots of it because we've become very invested in being right rather than reintegrating with others. It's going to be hard to walk back from from that sort of position, I think.
0: You say, I sit at my desk to work. But instead, I fidget between Twitter and Instagram and the news and Twitter and the news and Instagram and the news and Twitter and Instagram and Twitter and Twitter and Instagram and the endless terrible news and Twitter again, where everyone is outraged at the news and everyone seems certain in one direction or another about what ought to be done. And that is... I am very familiar familiar with that. You've been on Twitter once or twice. (laughs) Yeah, mm a couple times. And I know so many people who feel like, do I have adult onset ADHD? I can't even sit down to read a book anymore. I just feel like things have changed so much for me mentally. It requires so much work to focus on anything. And so I distract myself from these uncomfortable feelings by creating constant senses of, like newness and constant new stimuli of like, I'll look at this, I know this, I know this, and now this, and now this. So I don't actually have to do the work of sitting down and focusing on something. And I feel a slight sense of temporary stress relief by not forcing myself to feel the uncomfortable feelings of like, you actually need to do your job or like clean the house or even just do something that I know is better for me. Reading this book, visiting with a friend, going for a walk, working on my knitting. We all know that this endless cycle of like the news and the Twitter and the Instagram and the news and the news and the news and the Twitter, we all know that's bad for us. Nobody is under any delusion of like, this is healthy and normal. But yet we almost feel like, but I can't stop myself. I need to like install apps on my phones to control my own behavior. You know what? I think I I really began to get somewhere with
1: that when i came to see that looping behavior in particular that cycling between one app and another and then closing it down and opening the next one and sometimes closing the app and opening it immediately afterwards like as a complete impulse i began to to try and see that as a symptom of anxiety in itself as like a signal rather than as a bad behavior like actually it was a it was a kind of sign sent to myself that i'm not okay and to to go towards the not okayness rather than the, the apt behavior, which is kind of the surface presentation of actually a much deeper anxiety. and And what's going on underneath that is this constant set of threat that has become ever-present, but actually quite amorphous. You know, it's not something that we can look at. It, it is this sense that there is an existential threat forever on the horizon, but we can't see it. And life looks kind of normal, but every piece of media we're reading is telling us that it isn't. And our friends, when we talk to them, are telling telling us that it isn't. And our perception of the world is that there is this menace that we can't act on. And so we're living with this unspent kind of adrenaline all the time. We're ready. We're ready to take action on whatever it is this threat is and we're not really sure what it is but it it's really frightening us in a very genuine embodied way and that just translates into the most useful thing seems like going and being angry on social media going and being absolutely furious and expressing your rage and the only time you receive any validation is when you do that because then some people will come back to you and and say yes Right on. And I'm furious too. Oh, but wait, here's another thing to be furious about. And that that's the chain. And to be clear, all of these things are infuriating and, and the world is full of awful things. But never before have we had to live with this extent of contact with all the w- awful things in the world. And uh, I, I genuinely don't think our brains are built to deal with this level of under this globalized understanding. It's almost godlike the overview we have now of mm. all the terrible things in the world at once. And of course we're totally helpless in the face of it most of the time.
0: Mm. I think you're absolutely right that we were accustomed to dealing with tragedy on our own shores. Right? Like the oh it's the plague? Okay. That's gonna be terrible. Half of you are gonna die. That's a huge tragedy. But we also at the time were not dealing with the tragedies of another community 5,000 miles away. We didn't have the ability to communicate. Or if we did, it was like, send word to Lydia. And then it was like, it had to get on a ship. Six months later. Yeah. Yes. Literally, it will be six months before we hear back. And it all had to be written with a quill. You know what I mean? So like the words had to be worth it. (laughs) And uh, we only included what was really important to know. And again, this is not to minimize what was happening to a different community. But I, I think you're absolutely right that the human mind is not built to assimilate and react to every piece of tragedy that is happening around the world all at one time.
1: And also for our reaction, that very response to be visible, you know, that 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 initial gut reaction where we say, that's horrifying, that's disgusting. You know, it's there, it's there for everyone to see and it's there for everyone to see forever. And you know, what we're, a lot of what we're arguing now is our horrified response. You know, like we've witnessed someone else's horrified response. We're arguing about that response without actually even touching the people who are suffering, whose suffering has so horrified us and and who, you know, we feel like we have to defend. And it's a a toxic environment and it's a self-perpetuating toxic environment because we can argue forever about Our wonky human responses of grief and horror that are not, that were never designed for the outside world really, but they're now suddenly shared. We've got ourselves into quite the pickle, I'd say. But none of us (laughs) are willing to let that go, you know, at the same time. Like we're all clinging to the purity of that reaction. And we've, I think really got to start thinking about our part in this rather than other people's part in it. That's that's how it seems to me. This is only going to get addressed when we start looking inwards and saying, I can't control the whole world's behavior, but I, I actually can begin to modify mine a little
0: bit. It's a great point though that we are now spending all of our time arguing about somebody else's response to a topic. Whatever that topic is, the moon exploded. Well your response to how the moon exploded, unacceptable. We're now spending all kinds of time judging other people's responses to tragedy instead of actually responding to the tragedy or something more productive. It's now like, well, what did Catherine say about the moon exploding? Well, that's inappropriate. Can you believe what Catherine said about this horrific, we don't even have a moon anymore and Catherine's over here eating a cheese sandwich? You know, like that is literally how I feel like our discourse, has what we've devolved to.
1: Do you know, one of, this really gets to the heart of why I sat down to write Enchantment because I think one of the first the sentences I wrote in my notebook was, "I' am so tired of dystopias." And to kind of unpack that, I felt like I, I was just through with hearing this endless discourse about how terrible the world is, how unimprovable it is, how degraded, how we are in a, a sort of downward spiral, and anyone who speaks against that is either naive or a villain. And I'm weary of that. I'm weary of our giving up on our shared humanity. And I'm weary of the idea that there's any kind of ideological purity in us just giving up on humanity as as like a project. You know, we're we're just terrible. We should go extinct. And at the same time, I think that the, the inverse of me being sick of dystopias is that I've really noticed this sense that if you talk about any kind of pleasure in the world, Someone will pop up on Twitter or Instagram and scold you for taking pleasure while other people are suffering, in you know, whether it's in your own town or somewhere somewhere else. And I the reason I wanted to write enchantment was I wanted to make a, a case for how we need these moments of connection and pleasure and rest and all of these softer emotions in order to survive this world, like they are not in opposition to each other. It's not an either or. It's not like we can either have pleasure or people are suffering. It's like, we have to take pleasure where we can because there is so much suffering in the world. And if we are rested, and if we are grounded, and if we've been allowed to settle ourselves, we can help the world better. We can go in and be better citizens. And we can go in and be better friends and neighbours than if we are only obsessing all the time about the terrible things in the world the world is actually 95% probably more wonderful genuinely and that's what we need to integrate now more than anything else that's that's the lesson that we need to learn about this that the terrible violence the terrible suffering is unusual in our species for most of the time we are ticking along with great kindness and generosity. But those acts are really invisible to us because we are alert to danger signals because we're animals.
0: Mm. The subtitle of your book is Awakening Wonder in an Anxious Age. And I would love to hear you talk about what wonder means to you and how we can all go about awakening it in ourselves.
1: Yeah, I got to play with all the Disney worlds and uh, like the Disney terms in this book, like Enchantment <laughs> and Wonder.
0: For me, Wonder
1: is a really fundamental component of our understanding of the world, actually, and it's this way of seeing that I think we can all access, but I think we almost train ourselves out of it after childhood. Like, wonder comes so easily to children; they're drawn to things that they find fascinating, and they get into these like almost reciprocal relationships with inanimate objects you know they'll pick up a stone in the garden and that stone will be the center of their entire consciousness for often as long as you let them you know Mm -hmm. (laughs) and it's a very personal relationship with something with whatever it is so you can feel wonder at, at looking at the moon you can feel wonder at the shine in your shoes it doesn't matter what it is but it's this encounter with the world in in a way that feels magical in a way that makes you radically shift your perspective and suddenly come into contact with the the vastness of the universe around us and the vastness of time and the impossibility of of the life that we live like how, how beautiful it is how wonderful how interconnected like that's that's that experience of wonder and most of us will experience it at least once in our lives but we often don't go looking for it you know and I think we often see it as none of our business or see it as something that exists far away and we have to go on holiday and do something expensive to kind of access it and I the more I've kind of engaged with that topic the more I've realized that you you can find these little doses of it in everyday life, but you have to train yourself to pick up some signals that maybe feel quite distant and quite faint to you now, but which you probably had a training for looking for in your childhood. It's a lovely topic to write on, particularly in a a world that feels so grumpy. (laughs) Yes.
0: I love this idea that we have an innate ability to experience it because we experience it regularly as children. And in some ways, perhaps when our brains begin to be able to understand more theoretical ideas and, you know, as we get older and we can suddenly make sense of algebra, some of us can make sense of algebra. Yeah, some Some, um, <laughs> know, yeah. I, I some of <laughs> us, yeah. This idea of like, it's really cool to experience the majesty of a waterfall. There's not a lot of social capital and being like, oh my gosh, look at this incredible waterfall. You know what I mean? Like people make fun of you for it. It, it almost gets beaten out of us by our peers and by society. But I absolutely love the idea that it's still there. And you talk about this in the book. It, it's just there waiting for us to return to it. It, ne- it never leaves us. And uh, we just need to allow ourselves to tune into it. And we can practice tuning into it. It's not an either or light switch type situation. We can practice tuning into it. And I also love that different things can bring wonder to different people. It doesn't all have to be the same thing. We don't all have to be like, look at this mossy rock. For some of us, that will be super great. I love a good mossy rock. I
1: love a mossy rock. Yeah. I love a
0: good mossy rock. (laughs) But for other people, that's like, that is slimy. Get, get that out of here. I don't want your slimy rocks. But that's the beauty of it is they can have something different that they think is absolutely wonderful. How do we practice finding wonder so that we can begin to potentially experience less anxiety Uh, and we're not talking about like clinical anxiety. We're not talking about medical diagnoses. You know, we're not talking about it. This is not a substitute for speaking to a qualified therapist. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the discombobulation that people really are just experiencing as an everyday state. How do we begin to tap into that sense of wonder again?
1: Yeah. I mean, the question I ask, Ask myself quite often is how can I ground myself in this moment? You know, I don't have to achieve something that's going to solve all my problems forever, but I can make a connection with something that I find wonderful that's going to settle me for long enough to survive this moment, which is sometimes the bit that feels challenging. And I think one of the things that we can all do is begin to gradually, slowly coax back and engagement with with our own fascination, and and for some of us that's going to feel really far away, right? Because we've deliberately put it aside as we've grown up, and we've been told that it's immature to do that, and we mustn't do that. So we do have to show this some patience. But it, I think, one of the the things that you can do at the beginning is to start to reconnect with the things you found fascinating as a child. So did you love looking at the moon i was so as as i write in enchantment i was a big stone collector when i was a kid and i had these little boxes of specimens and i liked to line them up and learn everything about them and name them and so for me still i mean i'm i'm sitting at my desk here and it's surrounded by stones and i and i have them i'm going to pick up one now i have them so that i can just just hold one sometimes and you know i'm not talking about the kind of wonder here that's like Oh my God, I was out for a walk and an eagle literally landed in front of me and spread its wings and looked me dead in the eye and then flew off again. Like that, that's amazing, but that's rare and you're not in control of that. But what I am put in control of is engaging very deliberately and very carefully with something that I know I find interesting and beautiful and and kind of grand. I mean, I. I love the weight of a stone in my hand, and I love the way that if I sit with it for a while, it will warm in my hands. I love how much character a stone has got. And some people hearing that will not relate to that at all. Be like, stones haven't got characters, they're just little bits of rock. Fine, stones aren't for you. Great. Go and look at the moon, go and look at the stars, go and watch birds in flight, you know, go and watch the clouds change above you, go and watch some water drink a glass of water that's i mean that can be like a really incredible experience if you give it a moment but what we're talking about is focus and attention and spending a few moments paying close attention to something that you find beautiful and interesting and it doesn't have to be grand but if you practice it if you show it some patience and go back to it repeatedly every time you need it that relationship will only deepen and and It's like building a muscle. That wonder will come to you so much more easily, quite quickly. Mm.
0: I know some people who keep little notebooks of things that bring them delight, where they're like, that homemade ice cream cone that I had was just absolutely delightful. It had so much delicious flavor, and I want to remember it. And this act of sort of writing things down by hand, And then revisiting that list can also, I feel like, help flex that muscle, strengthen that neural pathway in our minds of like, here are things that have brought me just like a little moment of joy or pleasure or wonder. And it doesn't, again, like you're saying, you'd love the feel of a rock in your hand and the way that it feels warm. And other people might just be so fascinated with their sourdough starter. Oh, you've met my husband. (laughs) (laughs) It's It's a cool thing. It's wild yeast and it grows when I feed it. That's weird. That's cool. I love it. I can tell you that I have developed a very strong sense of wonder with this little bulb garden that I have in my house. And I bought myself a little bulb garden subscription and every month they send me this little potted thing of like tulip bulbs. And they grow in my house. And I love watching them. These bulbs grow like an inch a day. And within like two weeks, they grow from like one inch tall to literally a foot tall. And they just grow flowers. And all it takes is a little bit of water. And they just do it without my input. And this thing has just brought me an incredible amount of delight. And I've just wondered at these little things that just exist and have the purpose of bringing more beauty into the world, and it. Just, I I just find it magical. And it is and you know what's I mean I I have
1: my potted plants around my desk as well as as well as my stones, and I have to. I've been corrected so many times by my publicists that I, that in England we call them pot plants, but apparently I mustn't tell any more Americans that I have pot plants growing around my windowsill <laughs> because they would, would take it as something very that's very marijuana. Different. Uh Yes, that's uh right. Yeah, so I'm I am not growing drugs on my windowsill, but I am growing some very beautiful plants and it it's it's a moment of engagement. But I think what's interesting is that we often set up wonder as something that's almost in opposition to a scientific understanding of the world and like we almost have to choose between this fluid spiritual relationship where we go, Wow, it's kind of magical when a plant grows, isn't it? And between understanding it scientifically but i find that often understanding the the science behind why that plant's growing it fills me with the same amount of wonder as not knowing as just seeing it as this process that happens like it's incredible that a plant fundamentally grows from air and is plumped up by water
0: it eats the
1: sunshine
0: it eats
1: sunshine and it <laughs> and it's drawing you know it's drawing stuff from the air that i uh, I can't even explain it I'm going to be bad at it but I could I could go on engaging with that for the rest of my life in order to truly understand it and it increases my sense of wonder every time it does not become mundane to me just because I understand it it becomes all the more incredible how does how does this whole world fit itself together in such an elegant way and I can see the evidence of that right in front of me, sitting around my, my desk while I work. And I can see it through the little skylight window that's in front of me, where I, this morning I sat down and the moon was right there. I'm looking out into space. How do we, how do we keep forgetting how wonderful that is? It's extraordinary, but also very ordinary.
0: Absolutely i I totally agree with you that understanding something scientifically only enhances my sense of wonder about it. Like you mean to tell me it eats the sunshine and then it's like, mm, delicious and it then it grows. <laughs> like that is makes no sense, and yet it makes all the sense. And I feel the same way about space. I'm not very like physics is not I, my brain is like, nope, don't get it. but yet I also find it incredibly wonderful. To be like, here's a picture. In this picture, are ten thousand other galaxies. Oh, that picture! And I'm like, I don't, I do not understand it, but it's really, really cool.
1: <laughs> There's, you know, what a lot of a lot of wonder is, or in particular, the emotion awe, which Daka Keltner writes about so well, is the experience of radically understanding our smallness in the universe, and and that kind of. Big shift that happens when we realize how big the rest of the universe is and how we are. we're not even a speck in it. like we're not even that relevant. And as a child, I found that idea incredibly difficult to deal with. like this idea that space might be infinite, this idea that uh, that the time scales and the 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 size and the way that they're conflated, is impossible to get your mind around. And I, I felt very intimidated by that. But as I've got older, I find that a, a relief, like how much that lifts from me to know just how insignificant I am. And, and my stone tells me the same thing, incidentally, because, uh, you know, I've only got to think about the time scale over which that stone was made to know what a tiny speck I am, even in the history of this planet. And to radically shift into that, alleviate so much of my angst I don't matter I don't matter in the scale of things even even if I achieved incredible success in this lifetime over the scale of the of the universe and over the scale of time it's it's so insignificant it's vanishingly small, small and so we can breathe out, you know, <laughs> it's okay. It's
0: okay. What I take away from that when I am, you know, confronted with the vastness of the universe is that the weight of the world is not on my shoulders. And it doesn't mean, again, turn a blind eye to suffering, don't care about your neighbors, don't seek to improve the world, it doesn't mean any of those things. But the idea that when it, when I understand how small I am, I realize how much the universe is actually uh, not depending on me to be on Twitter. (laughs) The universe is people
1: on Twitter. Yeah.
0: Yeah. (laughs) To tell them they're exhibiting grief incorrectly. That the universe in its vastness and ancientness is actually not at all depending on me to post five tips for marketing on Instagram. (laughs) You know what I mean? Yep. Yeah, that's
1: (laughs) absolutely right. And yeah, and what's really interesting about that is when you start taking yourself back into scale, seeing yourself at scale, what what you do realise is that you could knock on the door of your neighbour down the road and, and make a genuine, a genuine, tangible difference at the at the correct scale of things, and that that would matter. That would genuinely matter. We've become almost dysmorphic in our understanding of our size related to everything else. And I, we need to find ways to step back into scale again, I think.
0: That's a great way to say that. That when we put ourselves in scale, we absolutely can make a difference. Uh, my ability to affect the, the happenings of a different galaxy is zero. And so I will feel nothing but angst if that is my mission but if when i put myself back into the correct scale as you say my ability to impact the world the scale of my world my next door neighbor who had a house fire or the child at my child's school who doesn't have any school supplies cuz their parent is in jail and you know that's a that's a problem that i can remedy and i can alleviate that child's humiliation at not having the right school items When I put myself back into scale, I can make an enormous difference. But if I'm always trying to make a difference in a galaxy beyond my own, I will never feel anything but angst.
1: Absolutely. You cannot feel settled with with that on your shoulders. And you know what? I'd, I'd go even smaller than that. I can make eye contact and smile at the person serving me at the at the checkout, at the supermarket, and say, hi, how are you? Rather than staring at my phone, arguing with someone on Twitter that doesn't care what I say anyway. Like, it, it, I'm not even helping them, I'm just being human with them. I'm just interacting, I'm just making contact on a basic level. Like, that has a real impact on not just someone's day, but on how we start to function again. We've dug ourselves into a hole, but we, we can for sure dig ourselves out of it. But we have to bring it back to us and not how everybody else needs to change.
0: It's a huge
1: lesson to learn, isn't it?
0: (laughs) I love it. I just love it so much. You say in your book, we, who so often think we're cultureless, can unpack a galaxy of stories from one garden weed. But the time has come for us to understand what these stories mean to us and to reconnect with the other stories, too, which are all waiting for us in our gardens and surging up from the cracks in the pavement. And we must tell them to our children so that they can't imagine living without them. Telling them is an act of belonging, a way of pushing taproots deep into the ground. And you say, in a world full of restless and displaced people, it's an act of welcome too. And I just loved your book. I felt very seen and it felt very comforting to me. And I love what you have to say about putting ourselves in scale in the universe. And I wonder if we can wrap this up by you sharing a few things that you find particularly wonderful.
1: Don't wind me up and let me go because I'll, uh, I'll go <laughs> for a couple of hours. Um, <laughs> I'm a water baby and I didn't grow up by the sea. But in my 20s, I realised I really had to because for me, the sea is like a magical being. I can't see it as animal. I can't possibly think of it as that way. It feels to me like this creature that I go and walk down to every day and watch its mood and think about how vast it is again. Like it, it does that scale stuff in my head again, like just watching the tide come in. Every day, in and out twice a day, and thinking about the volume of water that that represents, I can't fathom it, and yet it unfolds in front of my eyes twice a day, and I, I feel wonder every time I go and see the sea. And this morning, I noticed out of my window that the moon was setting over the sea. I'm I'm kind of about three blocks down, so I pulled on my clothes and went running down to watch it finally set over the horizon, and it was magical it took me 10 minutes it was not a problem i know i live near the sea but i also took the time to notice it and i i really think that anyone that's sitting there thinking well isn't she lucky that she got to see the sea take a little breath and think about the thing that you could do i mean i i quite often just step outside at night and look up at the moon and the stars it's so simple i'm not Trying to interpret anything from them. It, it's just a lovely thing. It's a lovely point of contact with my scale in the universe and with my feet on the ground. And it takes a minute. And the sky is definitely free and definitely something that I am allowed to go and see. And I can and I do because I make that decision. And I, I get it that we are bombarded in this world with expensive fixes that on one hand are so costly that we don't know how we can afford them, but at the same time completely overpromise what they can do for us and claim they're going to solve everything. And I we need to train ourselves to be attracted to the opposite, which is the free, mundane, everyday thing. That makes stuff a little bit better, and that's enough. That's often all we can have, and it and it still moves the needle a really significant amount.
0: I love this. I loved being able to chat with you. I really loved reading Enchantment, and I'm just really grateful for your work and grateful for your time today. Thank you for being here, Catherine.
1: Oh, thank you. It's been such a lovely conversation.
0: You can buy Catherine May's book Enchantment wherever you buy your books, and if you want to support local bookstores, you can order from bookshop.org. I'll see you again soon. The show is hosted and executive produced by me, Sharon McMahon. Our audio producer is Jenny Snyder. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. And if you could leave us a review or share this episode on social media, those things help podcasters out so much. Thanks for being here today. Listen, I know if you pick up any kind of beauty magazine or you follow an influencer, there's like a new skincare product every single day of the week. And it can be really difficult to know which ones to even try, like which one is worth your money. And if you're tired of cycling through ineffective skincare trends and overcomplicated routines, you might be excited to know that one of today's sponsors is OneSkin. Their products make it easy to keep your skin healthy. No complicated routines, just simple scientifically validated solutions. The secret is OneSkin's proprietary OS1 peptide. O-N-E-S-K-I-N dot C-O. Try Oneskin and enjoy younger, healthier skin without all the extra steps. That's Oneskin dot C-O, code Sharon. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince.